Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Well, hey, church, here's what I want to say to you today. Because Jesus took on your sin, you can put on his virtue. That's my sermon in a sentence. Because Jesus took on your sin, you can put on his virtue. As most of you know, we've been going through a series for the last three weeks called A Clearer Vision of Transformation. And we've been talking about this process of spiritual formation that the Apostle Paul lays out for us in Colossians chapter three. And we learned in step one that the first step in this process is to look up to Jesus. And then last week, Steve taught us that the second step is to take off the works of the flesh, those actions and attitudes that lead to death. And today for step three, I'm not going to be taking my shirt off. So I'm very sorry to disappoint you. It's common knowledge by this point. I'm not nearly as good or as good looking as Steve White is. Uh, For those of you who don't get that reference, go back and watch last week's sermon. I'm not a Calvin Klein model. When I take off my shirt in public, people just laugh or they apologize to my wife. And so I'm going to keep my shirt on today as we talk about step three, which is to put on Christ. Three steps, look up, take off, put on. Let's read uh, what the Apostle Paul has to say here in Colossians chapter 3. We'll be in verses 12 through 17. And by the way, I know that there are a lot of you who are working on memorizing Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Great work. Keep going. If you're not doing it yet, you can still jump in. Just two verses a week, and you can have all 17 verses knocked out by the end of the summer, and you will be better and more like Jesus because of it. Let's check out what Paul says in verses 12 through 17. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, psychologists like to talk about what they call the looking glass theory, part of which says that we become who the most important people in our lives say that we are. So if the most important person in a child's life says repeatedly that they're just a a spoiled little scaredy cat, then that will shape their self-perception. But the opposite is also true, that if the most important person in a child's life says that they are courageous and compassionate and creative, then that will set their little heart on a trajectory towards courage and compassion and creativity. And so here in Colossians chapter 3, before Paul tells us what to do, he reminds us of who the most important person says that we are. Paul begins by saying, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is your identity. You are God's chosen. 
I have a little sister who's 13 years younger than me, and I think I can say with a fair degree of certainty that she was not in the plan. Surprise! Uh, Do the math. If your next closest sibling is five or more years older than you, odds are your parents may not have planned on you. But God did. God chose you. Before you were even born, God knew you, and God wanted you to be a part of his family. You are God's chosen people. Holy, he says. Now, I know a girl who's pretty shy and quiet, but then one day her boyfriend got down on one knee and asked her to marry him, and she said yes, and now she walks around with a kind of confidence because she has a ring on her finger that says that she's chosen. She's holy. That word holy means to be set apart. It means she's his. She's off the market, and that's us. We're off the market. We don't belong to the world anymore. We belong to our heavenly groom. You are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You don't have to work to earn God's love. You don't have to perform to earn his affection. You are dearly loved right now by your father in heaven. And so now in light of who he says you are, now Paul tells us what to do. And he says, put on some new clothes. And some of you are thinking, sweet, all right, shopping spree. Well, before we go that far, uh, Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Now, my son Judah is two years old, which means that he's old enough to know how to take off his clothes, but he's not quite old enough yet to know that he's not actually supposed to take off all his clothes in public. Uh, A while back, my wife caught him with his drawers down, uh, watering the church lawn right outside Steve's office window. So this is a command that we're very familiar with in our house. Clothe yourselves. And this metaphor here of clothing, of of how you dress, it's actually used all throughout scripture. Clothing describes your righteousness, your deeds, the good or the bad things that you do. Now, of course, I hope you know that none of us are righteous on our own. We are all sinful beyond our wildest imaginations. In fact, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament describes our sinfulness in terms of clothing. He says in Isaiah 64 that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In other words, even the best things that we do aren't good enough to make us pure and perfect and holy. They aren't good enough to present us as righteous with clean clothes in God's sight. We need someone else to clothe us. It reminds me of way back in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden where the very first man, Adam and Eve, were there and and Scripture says that they were naked. Uh, There's the first marriage in history where the wife never had to say to the husband, honey, what should I wear today? They had it pretty good. In fact, Genesis chapter two says this, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. It was beautiful, complete union with each other, no hiding, complete union with God. But then they disobeyed God And it brought division in their relationship with each other. And it brought division in their relationship with God too. They used to be able to walk and talk with God in the garden, but now they hid. Genesis chapter three says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Now, all of a sudden, because of sin, mankind realized that we have nothing to cover us. We, we can't be purely and fully in God's presence anymore. But thankfully, God didn't leave Adam and Eve there. He made clothes for them. It would go on to say in, in verse 21 that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. But of course, Adam and Eve and you and I need something much deeper than just a new wardrobe. You might think that uh, I have poor fashion sense and you would certainly be right. You ought to see how I looked uh, before I met my wife, Rebecca. She's helped a lot, but... Some fresh threads ain't gonna fix this problem. 
My problem runs a lot deeper. I have a problem with my heart. But thankfully, God didn't just leave us in our spiritual nakedness. He, he promised to clothe us. He promised to save us. And he describes this in, in terms of clothing. Again, the prophet Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 61. He says, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. So how's, how's God going to do that? How's God going to clothe us and, and save us and make us clean and righteous again? Well, he sends his son, Jesus. And Jesus comes and, and he lives the life that we should have lived. He lives a perfect life, fully righteous, the only one ever to do it. But then he's arrested and he's falsely accused and he's beaten and bloodied and he's hung on a cross. Scripture says that he was stripped of his clothes. The soldiers who crucified him, they gambled to see who would get his clothing. And Jesus was made naked so that we could be clothed. Jesus took on our sins so that we could take on his perfection. It was the great exchange. He took the stain of our failure so that we could have the righteousness of his perfection. The apostle Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's go back to our sermon in a sentence. Because Jesus took on your sin, you can put on his virtue. In fact, uh, in Revelation, we get a picture of what it's like in heaven. And Revelation uh, describes that in heaven, the followers of Jesus are wearing white robes. Now, that doesn't mean that heaven's going to be a big toga party. Remember, it's symbolic. Our clothing is symbolic of our righteousness. That me, this means that when you follow Jesus, you are forgiven. You are washed clean. You are made new. You are clothed in his perfection. Revelation chapter 7 describes the scene. Uh, John says this. He says, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Because Jesus took your sin, you can put on his virtue. We're made clean through him. That because he was stripped, we can be clothed. Because he was killed, we can live. Because he took your sin, you can put on his virtue. And yet... A lot of you are not living like you're clothed in Christ's perfection. We've all seen those people, right, who have cool Patagonia gear or North Face swag, but they've never even gone for a walk in Hummel Park, much less hiked up a mountain. And you know people who have nice new running shoes and cool workout gear, but they've never touched a kettlebell, and I would be one of those people. But this process in Colossians chapter 3 is about actually living like we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's about this process that we've walked through of, of looking up to Jesus and then taking off the lingering sin in our lives and putting on corresponding virtues, putting on Christ himself. Because he took on your sin, you can put on his virtue. But before we dive too deep into these virtues, I want to tell you two things about them and then we'll jump in. First, these are communal virtues. These are clothes that we wear together. Uh, you might remember that in the beginning of verse 12, Paul kicked off this section with just one little word. He says, therefore, he just says, therefore. Now, when you're reading scripture and you see that word, therefore, you have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? What's this building on? What came before this? Well, in this case, Paul's building this whole section off of verse 11, which we read last week, where Paul says, here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
In other words, he's saying that, hey, you guys in the church, y'all are supposed to be a diverse community of Jesus followers. You should be rubbing shoulders with people who are really different than you, having such deep and rich and real and intimate relationships that, well, complications are gonna arise and you're gonna have to work through issues together and that's where you're gonna develop these virtues. You don't get to be more compassionate or more patient just by meditating off on a mountaintop somewhere by yourself. You don't get to put on the virtues of Christ unless you're living with the people of Christ, which is why just like Steve challenged you last week, it is so, so important that you get in a home group because these are communal virtues. We grow when we do life together with other Jesus followers. Secondly, these are Christ's virtues. Uh, Paul's not just throwing together a list of nice qualities here kind of at random. These are actually the character traits of Jesus himself. Remember, the first step in this process of transformation is to look up to Jesus. And we've said this over and over again, that when you follow Jesus, what is true of him becomes true of you. You put on Christ himself. In fact, elsewhere in scripture, Paul goes so far as to say that we are putting on Jesus. In Galatians chapter three, Paul says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. He would say something similar in Romans chapter 13. He says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. We are called to actually put on Jesus. Because he took on your sin, you can put on his virtue. So now we're gonna spend the rest of our time together just kind of walking through these virtues that Paul gives us in verses 12 through 17. I wanna look at first how Jesus displayed these virtues and then how Jesus wants to display these virtues for you. Uh, So first, Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Now, compassion is literally feeling with someone else. When I hurt, you hurt. When I celebrate, you celebrate. Uh, In Mark chapter six, Jesus and his disciples, they're exhausted from doing ministry. And uh, Jesus says, hey, let's get away. Let's, Let's rest for a day. But it wasn't to be, they get away, but thousands and thousands of people swarm around them trying to get close to Jesus. But instead of being frustrated by having his day of rest taken from him, Mark chapter six, verse 34 says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Actually, he taught them all day long. Can you imagine a sermon that lasted all day? You guys can barely sit through me for 30 minutes. And needless to say, after all day listening to Jesus teach, everybody's tired, they're hungry, but Jesus doesn't just send them home when he's done. He knows they're hungry. And and so he takes five loaves of bread and two fish and he multiplies it and he feeds the whole crowd as much as they want. 5,000 men, not even counting women and children. That's compassion. And Jesus wants to use you to feel what the people around you feel and to meet them in their moment of need. Clothe yourself with compassion. Next, Paul says, kindness, kindness. Kindness is positive intentions toward other people. And Jesus displayed these positive intentions with the people that he met, the Samaritans and tax collectors and prostitutes and the sick and the poor and the lame and the needy, the people that nobody else wanted to talk to, that nobody else wanted to sit with, that everybody else thought were dirty. Jesus loved them. Jesus laughed with them. Jesus talked with them. Jesus knew their names and their stories and their families and stayed in their homes and invited them of all people to be his disciples. And Jesus wants to use you 
to be a beacon of his richness and his blessing and his kindness to everybody that you meet. Next, Paul says, humility. Now, this literally means self-forgetfulness. Kind of hard to forget yourself, isn't it? Now, back in the first century when Paul was writing this, this was an honor-shame culture, which meant that they believed that there was a limited amount of honor to go around. So if somebody else got honor, that meant that there was less honor for you. And so all of life was kind of this competition, this game of one-upmanship and self-promotion. But then Jesus came and changed all that. In John chapter 13, Jesus took the place of lowest honor and he did it voluntarily. At the last supper, he washed his disciples' feet and then he called his followers to do the same. He calls us to be people who don't really care about where we rank compared to others. We don't really care about climbing the ladder all that much and we don't really care about competing with each other and actually we're free to rejoice when other people have success. Humility. Next, Paul says, clothe yourself with gentleness. Now, all the Father's Day cards in the store this week uh, probably carried, you know, pictures of big burly guys in flannel shirts with giant biceps and big long bushy beards that I don't have. And they're wandering around in the woods with, you know, hunting bears and they got their chainsaw. And then gentleness, it just doesn't seem like a very manly trait, but it actually is. Gentleness is not weakness. It's power under control. It's an elephant that lets you ride it. It's a stallion that lets itself be saddled. It, it, it's not weakness. It's voluntary restraint. And, and Jesus showed this too. Jesus could have displayed these awesome, incredible uh, works of glorious power that the whole world would have seen so that nobody could deny who he was. But that's not what he did. He gave people time. He, he talked with people. He was patient with people. He, he could have called in legions of angel armies to smite everybody who opposed him, but, but he didn't do that. He was gentle. And he calls us to be gentle too, gentle to our kids and gentle to our spouse. Next, Paul says, clothe yourself with patience. That word literally means long burning. Have a long fuse, be long suffering. Give people space to grow up, make allowance for people's shortcomings. Don't react immediately with the need to get revenge or exact immediate punishment. And, and Jesus has been patient with us, hasn't he? Uh, in Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes up to Jesus and he's like, hey, Jesus, like when people keep doing me wrong and they keep failing and they keep letting me down, how many times do I have to put up with them and forgive it? Like seven times? And he thought he was being pretty generous. But in verse 22, Jesus says, no, 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 not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, as many times as it takes. Patience, be patient. Next, Paul says, uh, this is a good one, bear with each other. <laughs> uh, you guys know, you all have those people in your lives who just drive you nuts, right? Well, Paul is saying, put up with the people who drive you nuts. And if you don't have those people, it probably means that you are those people. You might be that person. <laughs> and, and you know, the world is gonna tell you, hey, you don't need to put up with that. You don't need them. Get them out of here. But that's not what Jesus says. It's not what he did to us. It's not what he did to his disciples. I mean, over and over and over in the gospels, the disciples just don't get it. They don't understand who he is or what Jesus's kingdom is all about. And yet, instead of just ditching them and getting a whole batch of new disciples, Jesus sticks with them and he keeps talking to them and walking with them and teaching them and loving them. And Jesus can give you the power to do that as well with the people in your life who need a little bit of extra grace. Next, Paul says, and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
And of course, we see this in the life of Jesus as he is crying out for the very people who are nailing his hands to the cross and hanging him up to die. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And, and I know that some of you have been hurt deeply. You've been wronged, violated even. The only path to freedom is forgiveness. And forgiveness doesn't change the past, but it does keep you from being chained to the past. Forgiveness. The truth of the matter is, you know, that God has had to forgive in me more than I will ever have to forgive in anybody else. And so if that's true, if God has forgiven you, and if he is willing to forgive the person who hurt you, then he can give you the power to forgive them too. Next, Paul says, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love is the belt that holds this whole outfit together. Without love, all these other virtues start to sag. And Jesus says actually that this is how people are gonna know that we're followers of him, not by how we vote or not by how much we know or not by what kind of t-shirts we wear. In John chapter 13, Jesus says this. He says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And how do we know what love is? First John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Put on love. Next, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body, you were called to peace. That word rule right there is actually an athletic word. It means that let the peace of Christ be the umpire, be the referee in your relationships. And you know, Jesus did not tolerate people who were harboring bitterness or resentment or relational conflict in their lives when they came to worship. And we are called as Jesus followers to do absolutely everything that we can to establish true and lasting peace with our brothers and sisters. So if you have lingering conflict in your life, address it. Paul says, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Now, I don't know if you've noticed yet, but uh, we sing together (laughs) when we come together every week to worship because partially music has this power to drill the truth down deep into our hearts, right? I don't remember all that calculus I learned in high school, but you better believe that I can still sing the Gilligan's Island theme song. And I wouldn't expect my son Judah to do rote memorization of 26 Arabic characters. But if you put a tune to it, he can. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And so we sing partially to remember the truth. And and Jesus did this too. Matthew chapter 26 says that as Jesus and his disciples are leaving the last supper, they're on their way to the garden of Gethsemane. They sang a hymn that as Jesus is going into the darkest hour of his life where he will be arrested and eventually crucified, he sang to God. And I know that it's sometimes awkward and that you might not feel like it, but when you come to worship, I'd encourage you to sing because God deserves it and your heart needs it. Paul says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So if Jesus was with you, how would you drive your car? How would you go about your work? How would you spend your money? How would you do things on your phone? How would you talk to your spouse? Bring everything you do under the lordship of Jesus Christ because he is with you. 
You probably know the name Johann Sebastian Bach, who's a musical genius. Well, at the beginning of every piece of music that Bach wrote, at the top of the page, he would write, Jesus, help me. And then he was done with, when he was done with the piece of music, at the bottom of the last page, he would write, to God alone be the glory. And may the same be true of us, that as we begin anything, Jesus, help me. And at the end, to God alone be the glory. It's Father's Day, you know, and if you're a parent, you probably have some cute memories like I do of your kids stomping around the house in your shoes or trying on your clothes. And, and it's cute, right? Because they want to be like you. Uh, but it's also kind of funny and a little awkward because the clothes are way too big and they keep falling off and they're too baggy. Well, the same is true for us, especially if you're new in your faith and, and you're trying to do this to put on Christ. Don't be surprised if the clothes don't always fit right. And if it's a little hard to move around in them and they just keep falling off sometimes, you're going to trip and fall when you're trying to walk in your father's shoes. But the important thing is that you keep going and keep trying. And if you don't give up, you will grow into them. As you continue this process of looking up to Jesus and taking off the things that are not of him and putting on his character, you'll be able to say like Paul did, that Christ is your life. That because he took on your sin, you can take on his virtue. There's an author by the name of Walter Wangren who writes a beautiful story about this called The Ragman. I want to read it for you. He says this. One Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking in the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a rich baritone voice, rags, rags, new rags for old. I take your tired rags, rags. Now this is a wonder. I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four. His arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular. His eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a rag man in the inner city? And so I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon, the rag man saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into her handkerchief, shedding a thousand tears. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman. Give me your rag, he said so gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, and, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. And then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face. And then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking. Yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. And the bonnet he set on hers. And I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own blood. 
rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, yet strong and intelligent ragman. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work? He asked the man who leaned against the telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket flat. He had no arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket and so did the ragman and I trembled at what I saw. For the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve. And while the other put on, he had two good arms all of a sudden, thick as tree limbs. But the ragman had only one. Go to work, said the ragman. After that, he, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, and sick, yet he went with terrible speed. He skittered through the alleys of the city this mile and the next until he came to its limits. And then he rushed beyond and I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow. And yet I, I, I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. He climbed a hill with tormented labor and he cleared a little space on that hill. And then he sighed. He lay down and he pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket. And he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who had no hope because I'd come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man and I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I, I did not know, how could I know, that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and it's night too. But then, on Sunday morning, I was wakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my face and I blinked and I looked and I saw the last and first wonder of all. There was the ragman folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And beside that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow nor of age, and all the rags that he had gathered shined with cleanliness. And then I lowered my head, trembling for all that I had seen, and I myself walked up to the ragman, and I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. And then I took off all my clothes in that place and I said to him with yearning in my voice, dress me. And he dressed me. My God, he put new rags on me and I am a wonder beside him. The ragman, the ragman, the Christ. Because Jesus took on your sin, you can put on his virtue. Which I think perhaps is why Paul ends in verse 17 by saying this. 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what we're going to do together now as we do every week. We're going to take the bread and take the juice to remember Jesus' body and his blood and to thank God that he did not leave us in our spiritual nakedness, but that he sent his son Jesus to be stripped so that we could be clothed, to be stained so that we could be washed, and that because Jesus took on our sin, we can put on his virtue. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.